Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN merch button click on that it'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey on the swag that i'm using it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear sports history network and my favorite podcaster the sports history network store shop there today blog talk radio back in time to seasons past when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday fighting for one more first down one more yard gain one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron race welcome to gridiron race football on the gridiron greats publishing and broadcasting network in conjunction with Slick Enterprises, and we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Good Iron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Good Iron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Good Iron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. <laughs> we cover 150 plus years of football history and memorabilia. Find us on the web at RedIronGreatsMagazine.com. At this time, I'd like to introduce my co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to RedIronGreats Magazine. A football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Largan. He hails. Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squares. Jack, welcome to the show this evening. Oh, Captain, good to be back. And I'd like to start off the show tonight, unfortunately, on a somber note. And yeah. uh, for those who have not heard and uh, talk different chat rooms past week, longtime football card collector, football memorabilia collector, a gentleman who had a great love of the American Football League and the San Diego Chargers, uh, a friend of the hobby, a friend of Gridiron Greats Magazine, one of our original subscribers. Yeah. Welcome. Mr. Paul Howard passed from several health issues that he had for the past couple of years. And just to lead off, Two stories. I've known Paul since roughly 2008 when I took over the magazine and uh, very dedicated to the magazine. He enjoyed reading it, gave me some um, some feedback way back when on the magazine, which I try to follow and, and listen to him about. But my, my claim to fame with Paul was the 2016 Atlantic City National Convention. Paul... Stayed, uh, we both stayed at the Tropicana, and uh, he was a few rooms down from my room on the same floor. So the first two mornings we were there, we uh, went downstairs for coffee, for coffee and uh, a donut or a roll or whatever we did. We talked, talked football, talked about a lot of different things. 
And uh, in the old days, we were members of another chat room, and they had their annual dinner on Thursday night. And we were at an Italian restaurant in Atlantic City. And I remember we were on the third floor of this restaurant. There was no elevator getting up or down, so you have to walk steps up and down. And Paul had a few pops. I had a few pops. <laughs> and uh, Paul, Paul says to me at the end, um, will you walk me home? I said, sure, Paul. Now, I got, you got a picture of this. For those who don't know me, I'm, I'm about five foot eight. Paul was what, six, four, <laughs> six, five? He's yeah, probably taller than me. I'm I'm six five. Yeah, he's a big boy. All right, so he's six seven. All right, so he's probably got a foot on me, <laughs> and he's got at least sixty seventy pounds on me. So we're walking now, Atlantic City, uh, from where we went up to the Tropicana. There, we, it was a, probably a good seven eight block walk, and I let was we're, we're leaving, and I said to Paul, I could call a taxi, Paul. We could just get a get a taxi up up the street here. And he says, not at all. We're going to walk. It's a nice night. So we're walking up the street, and I'm I'm basically praying we don't get bugged or whatever going up there. <laughs> but uh, get into the lobby mercifully and get to the get to the elevator. And I still remember there was a bellhop in the elevator, and I gave him the, the floor, whatever the floor was. And he says, do you need any help here? And I said, no, 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 we'll be fine. And Paul's trying to make conversation with the bellhop. And I'm like, holy mackerel, I don't believe this is happening. So we get out, and the guy says again, he says, I can help you to get him in his room. I said, no, we'll be fine. So I get Paul in, and I said, you need any help, Paul? He says, no, 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 I'll be fine. He says, I'll meet you for coffee tomorrow morning like we did. And I said, okay. And sure enough, you could you could set your watch. The next morning, I'm opening the door, and who am I? Who am I looking at as I'm coming out of the room? Is Wolfie? He's all dressed. He's all ready. He's just ready to go. And I said, I was hoping you were going to be here, but I'm hoping you're going to be here, Paul. He says, Yeah. He says, We're going to go down for coffee and get something to eat. He said, I'm fine. And then, <laughs> and he said, Thanks for walking me home. I said, well, good. I'm glad you remembered at least what was going on. And, <laughs> and it was fun. But uh, that, was a, that was a classic. That was a classic. I, I, I will never forget that as long as I live. But uh, and, I feel bad. I feel bad. I, yeah. I, and I, I, think, I think Wolfie would enjoy us telling stories of him and laughing. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's sad. Loved the guy. I, I live in Portland, Oregon, and Paul lived up in Bellingham, which is about uh, an hour north of Seattle. It's about four hours away, but we'd meet for Seahawk games. His wife and my wife and me. He'd come through Portland every once while. I visited once when we went up to Bellingham, but I met him on the CU boards originally. Just absolutely loved his sense of humor, and I immediately migrated to that as I have the same sick sense of humor. Uh, and uh, before I joined LTS, before I joined, you know, VFC, uh, I, I met Paul. I mean, I went to a national before I had any of that in August of uh, 2008. And I'd, I'd arranged to meet Paul. And uh, I met him outside the Chicago National. And he was smoking and met, met Rick Snyder there uh, with Mint State as well. And the three of us sat and talked and we went and had lunch. So Paul's you know, the first hobby person I met. And I just, I dug him. Uh, did a lot of things socially with him. Uh, you know, drinks, we both loved gin. Hendrix gin. Went golfing with him at a national. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt Schmigdahl uh, shared some pictures. I totally forgot about that. And the, the guy named Vince Bellier, who's from uh, Australia. And uh, Kurt, me and Paul, we all went golfing and just and Paul's just that funny guy. I mean, he broke his driver uh, at one point and had the sprinklers go on on him, uh, and just laughed uh, and just had a good time. And that that's what Paul brought to the table and uh, loved his sense of humor. And I knew he wasn't well. He visited Portland about four years ago, right before about a year before uh, COVID, and we all went to dinner and had some drinks and uh, I, I knew he wasn't well then he'd announced then he had Parkinson's the onset of it and he wasn't showing very much. So, I mean, I was like, oh, hopefully this is one of those slow moving ones, you know, and he'll get, he'll get better. Or, so 
will be able to live with it somehow. I hadn't spoken to him in two and a half years, you know, through the pandemic and, you know, that we, we all get busy and, uh, yeah, going to miss the guy. Wolfie, man, love you. And, uh, I hope your 62 Fleer set is waiting for you in heaven, my man. Yeah, I agree. Uh, great, great person for the hobby. Great sense of humor. Uh, had a lot of good laughs with him. Had a lot of good times. Last time I saw him was the last national, I believe in Chicago. And uh, I remember dinner with him again. And then my infamous trip in 2016, uh, helping helping him get home that night. <laughs> R.I.P. Paul. We, we miss you, guy. All right. Onward. Auctions. Joe, handing off to you. Well, uh, thanks for allowing me to segue from that into this. Uh, we're going to talk about some auctions that popped out. I mentioned in the last show, uh, I get giddy during auction season. And uh, we had uh, memory lane was ending, but there were some kind of some ho-hum things in memory lane. Uh, and I knew uh, Mile High had some really good uh, – excuse me, Mile High had some, uh, some good things coming up, uh, as well as REA. Uh, and there's, there's one more that pops here in a little bit, but I wanted to talk about uh, the one that goes first here, Mile High. Uh, pretty happy. Some, as you know, I've gotten more and more into my unopened collection a little bit. And uh, we just saw this 59 Tops vending box where you remember where the cards were banded together as, and yep. the quote was, as if one would do currency? Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- th- that box, that box has resurfaced. I saw uh, that. So uh, I don't know if it's the same. How many, how many 59 vending boxes are there out there? You know, exactly. I don't know, but, exactly. but a first series, uh, a vending box, two of them, uh, 1959 are up for sale. They end in seven days, currently at 20,000, not including the VIG. And then a partial box of 59 vending, uh, approximately 238 cards would be about 15 packs. Uh, also there, pretty interesting. And then a 1960 tops partial vending box uh, unserts 315 cards, which is about uh, which is about uh, uh, 16 packs. So I, vending, and again, they show pictures of the boxes and the two vending box one, you can see a discoloration of the cards at some point uh, right. where they're, they go the other way and they're slightly discolored. And I just look at this and I'm like, and one of them, the picture, uh, the, the, you know, we call it vending box A, you can see a riffle in a couple of the cards in the center packs, which means they've been right. taken out and dropped or something like that. And it just, Vending boxes, Bob. I mean, the odds of these things being searched, you know, thumbed through, you know, pretty high. You know. Yeah, I don't. I don't see what the the fascination with these two boxes are. Number one and number yeah. two. I think they're picked over and damaged. And I don't know who in their right mind really wants to, you know, bid on something like that, knowing the condition it's in. It doesn't really make a lot yeah. of sense to me. So. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Good luck to anybody who's buying it. You obviously got, you know, a lot of money to burn if you're going to put your money into something like that. But to me, that's it's a, they're not worth it. They really aren't. Yeah. So two boxes of full 59 vending. One of the boxes looks like it's been picked through. One box of 59 vending that's partial. One box of 60 vending that's partial. A lot of this vending hitting, uh, hit, hitting the road. Uh, you know, I don't know why it's coming out of the woodwork, but I, I love, uh, you know, unopened, but I'm certainly not going to buy a vending box. I, I don't even like modern vending boxes, but just the possibility right. the right. of them being picked through are just too much. Uh, right. So that's a cool one mile high. Uh, very happy with that. Uh, Robert Edward Auction, friend of Gridiron Greats podcast. Uh, Brian Durant was, uh, or uh, excuse me. Brian Dwyer was on, uh, what, about a year ago, 10 months ago? Yep. yep. So yep. I, I love seeing his auctions pop. I love seeing him get amazing things. Great unopened. 
a uh, third series 72 football, which we know the third series is incredibly rare. doesn't come up very much. Uh, 77 football with the uh, superstar Seahawk great Steve Largent rookie card in there. An amazing SGC 8.5 Jim Brown rookie card. And then also a, uh, a, a stunning 58 Jim Brown PSA 8 that is just good looking. A good sampling of 57 tops, a really good sampling of 35 Chickle minus the Nagurski. Um, you can never find a Nagurski. I haven't seen one of those come up for auction in a long time, but really good on open. I, I, I love seeing a really good auction like this pop where there's about, you know, 25 things you put a feeler bid on, and you're hoping to end up with about right. three or four of them. You're hoping some stuff falls through the cracks, but two. All right. Absolutely stunning, good-looking Jim Brown rookie cards. And I got a feeling those Brown rookie cards are going to really go through the roof because of just the high appeal to each one of them. They're they're, they're nice cards. Those are generally nice cards. And, again, because you know me, I like picking on graded cards because I don't collect them. Why is is it an 8.5? It's beyond me. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand the rationale behind grading cards. I, I, I will never understand it. And that's it. <laughs> uh, my, my opinion, my opinion, that should be a nine. You know, it, to oh, me, it, it presents well, you know, yep. what's the game of it? What's the point of it? Just to crack it open and, and get it regraded and say so you can regrade it? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. It doesn't, yeah. it does not make sense to me. But, uh, yeah, whatever. it is a game. It's, uh, and then an auction I've been waiting to open. Uh, Memory Lane just popped. They gave a really nice preview, yep. which I always appreciate. And inside this is uh, a VFC member had mentioned he had a 52 Bowman large nickel pack, incredibly rare, right. Uh, right. that uh, he was auctioning off in this. So uh, you have an incredibly rare nickel pack, and you have a partial box of 54 Bowman nickel packs. And it's 14 of the original 24 packs. But I'm really glad they put a picture in here because if you look at the picture, some of the packs look like they have uh, some damage to them. You know, right. so it's, right. uh, it, it's right. nice to see that picture too. That, you know, to post up a little bit, good, you know, a little bit better of a description. But uh, so partial yep. nickel pack wax box, which is pretty cool. Some great items coming up. And I can only imagine, again, where that unopened ends up at, how high it goes. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be amazing, truly amazing. Yeah. So we're going to keep our audience. We'll, go ahead. Yep. I was just going to say, and then obviously Heritage, I think, has a continually running thirty uh, auction every 30 days. So. <laughs> the usual. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, Love of the Game had an auction, but there was no football in it. It's his baseball uh, spring auction, spring training auction. Uh, not spring training, but yeah. spring auction. And I, I know he normally just eats, uh, has only baseball in it. I looked at it, and uh, it was all baseball. So we'll see what happens yeah. for the next few weeks. We'll keep, keep everybody posted on this. Some great material. Single large. Not a single large in card, not auction. Disappointing. <laughs> Our, our, special, our special guest is here, and I'd like to introduce him. Uh, he's been a pro football writer for over 30 years, starting at the Pitt News, the University of Pittsburgh student newspaper, where he won the school's first outstanding sports columnist award. He's been a member of the Pro Football Writers Association since 1987. He joined Pro Football Weekly in 2004, where he was a featured columnist through 2013. At Pro Football Weekly, he won several PFWA writing awards, including Best Column, the most coveted of all awards, in 2009. I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Tom Denelock. Tom, welcome to the show this evening. Thank you. I've been anticipating this interview all day. Hey, me too. What a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, I'd like I like uh, some of the topics that were that I got to see in the in the prep uh, prep sheet, so we're, I'm ready to roll. <laughs> Most excited guest award, right, Bob? 
I like it. You got it. You got it. And uh, again, when I uh, was introduced to you via email by John Wilkie, um, it was interesting when I saw University of Pittsburgh brought back some fond memories for me uh, before your time, however, in uh, 80, 81, and 82. I had dated a gal there who was uh, I went to college with as an undergraduate. She did her graduate work there. I never saw a Pitt football game, though, while I was there. Uh, but I was into a nice campus there. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I was not able to get out there on a weekend they were playing at home. So uh, very interesting. So welcome to the show, Tom. And I'd like to lead off by asking uh, you, and if you could tell our audience, how did you get interested in football? And in your initial writings at the University of Pittsburgh there. Hmm. Yeah, well, foot, football, that, that just happened when I realized I was on the planet. And there was the NBC <laughs> games on in the 70s and the music and the great uniforms and the Kurt Gowdy's voice and Summerall and all that. So I was, a, I was drawn to that. I don't remember ever not being a fan, put it that way. And I think most people hmm. can relate to the same thing. Uh, the sport, the writing part of it came, I'd say, to you through Sports Illustrated, which you guys know that there was sporting news in Sports Illustrated, and then you waited another week till they came out again, right? That was that was sports. That's all you got. And the picture, the the the, the combination of great photography and great writing, which at that time Sports Illustrated had even through into the early 90s was just you know it was a it was an event for me when that magazine came out so uh, that's that's part of the link and then growing up where i did western pennsylvania the this was a great time for pittsburgh sports writers the post gazette and the press were just loaded with great columnists back then entertaining guys and so i was drawn to that world although i didn't i didn't care about writing it uh, I just wanted to read it. But then when I got to Pitt in 85, uh, I picked up a copy of the school newspaper, and I read their pro football or their college football preview, and I thought, wow, you know, geez, I can do better than this. Even though I wasn't sure if I could do better than this, I said I could do better than this. And so I, I jumped into it, and, and that's how I got, got caught up with uh, the, the pairing of writing and, pro, and football, mostly pro football. Huh. Well, I remember those Sports Illustrated showing up. I, 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 you were talking about that, Tom, and I'm like, man, I can remember the smell of the magazine, the excitement of it, just reading it, and just the writing was so good. And that's, you know, obviously pre-internet, et cetera. Well, plus, you, you know, it was a, it was a big deal to see who was going to be on the cover. I mean, that was an event. Right. I mean, it really was. Good point. Good, very good point. You know. The same thing with the sporting news. What was overlooked in the sporting news, in my opinion, it had the most complete statistics of the four team sports every week. And, you know, you just couldn't beat it. I mean, you had you had a breakdown of your football scores. You had your breakdown of your baseball, but had every box score of every major league game. I mean, it was just, it was just a wealth of knowledge there that is, yeah. to me, that's just, it's not found today. Even on the internet, it's really not found. Yeah, you, you know, you still see box scores. You still have, uh, you know, breakdown scores on football games, so on and so forth. But you just don't have that flavor that you had in a printed publication like a Sports Illustrated or a Sporting News or even Sport Magazine uh, where, you, where you read that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's really a lost art, to say the least. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely right. I agree. I, I agree. Uh, you know, every week was a weekly, you know, I always look forward to, and I, I subscribed to Sports Illustrated back in the 60s, you know, up to roughly the 90s. And Sporting News, I, I subscribed in the late 60s up to the 90s also. And it was just, just an incredible publication, to say the least. <laughs> Tom, I feel like we would be good friends if we uh, had met earlier. Yeah, all the your, – your... The things you write about, the era you write about, is right in my sweet spot when I was growing up. Uh, like you mentioned, you said earlier, it's like, I don't ever remember not being a football fan, and that really resonated with me because I'm, I'm the exact same way. Uh, your, your book, Majesty and Mayhem, Pro Football 
of of the 1980s. The, the probably one of the best era footballs or football. Everyone's going to talk, you know, point to a different one, but that's that's when I got into football. That's when you know it became popular on TV. Tell us about your book and how you came to write it. Yeah, well, I had um, my first book was a was on the 70s and. It was a basically a collection of Playboy magazine type interviews. You know, <laughs> I did this, just did on just I just took a copy of a Playboy interview and said, okay, I'm going to write these football interviews all in the same style. So really, not a lot of creative or editorial type writing for that one. It's mostly just sitting out listening to a tape recorder and transcribing. Uh, the next one I did was a book on the '60s, a fictional book about. Pro football had the had the uh, AFL and NFL got together five years earlier and had five more Super Bowls and so I got to play with that one a lot loose with the facts because I could make it all up and nobody could you know contradict me or call me out on it it's all fiction. <laughs> well, th- then all of a sudden it becomes this logical progression. Okay, well, that's, what's the next era you want to look at? In the '80s, really. You know, my favorite era only because I remember it from start to finish. You know, in, in the 70s, I, I, I couldn't tell you what happened between 70 and 73. But 80 to 89, I mean, I'm on that. So that was really an easy one for me to address um, because I was, you know, dialed in every Sunday and, 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 and very familiar with all the characters and the games and the coaches, et cetera, et cetera. So the way I handled this one was not so much a – chronological history, Michael McCambridge type presentation. I just said, okay, what do you recall from the 80s? What were your favorite moments, your favorite games, the most controversial topics? And I just pulled them out of my head and wrote basically an essay on each one of those 45 topics, and they were all 80s focused, and that became Majesty and Mayhem. Huh. So... so I, I, and I beg your pardon. I didn't have time to uh, order and read the book. So this is kind of a, a novella. It's a, it's a it's a bunch of short stories on different on different topics, basically. Yeah, I just I like that short chapter feel because then you don't you can put it down and you can go away and pick it up three weeks later and not forget where you were. Uh, you know, I, I like I like that snapshot type of book. Hmm. That's. That's a, that's unique to write it that way too, because I think a lot of, especially a lot of football books, to say the least, are very regimentated as far as how they're covering things and how they write things. You know what I mean? And um, doing, you know, looking at your, you know, some of the online stuff of your books, so on and so forth. It is a, it is something that you can read and then put it down and then and then pick it back up again, and you really. You're you're not lost as far as well you know what what was spoken about this player this game so on and so forth and again you know in a way how much can you write about something that has been written about a hundred times a thousand times over and over again and that's something if you're looking for a better niche or you, a more unique yeah. niche you found it if you really found it in writing it that way. That's the way I look at it. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, let's let's be honest. What can anybody learn about Marino or Fouts or the '85 Bears or Lawrence Tent? Right. So you can't start just regurgitating what's already out there. You've got to present a little different angle to these characters, and that's what I tried to do here. Because first of all, my impressions on them, and uh, I'm not trying to necessarily give a, a historical. A resume with these people. My my memories of it, what I think about them, and maybe you disagree, which is good because at least I'm stirring some kind of emotion in the book rather than people just saying, okay, well, I knew, I knew nine of the ten things you presented here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then I think that's what's unique about it uh, because, again, I, when, you know, I, I, I have hundreds of football books, and especially the newer stuff that's coming out, there's certain ones about older players you know, from like the 20s and 30s, you are learning something new because there really isn't that much information. You're right in what you're saying. What really, I look at basically from 1970 up, what hasn't not been written about a player or game or a season that has not been written already? What is different? What is unique? What more can you add? I'd rather read, you know, this is from my, my point of view, I'd rather read what the player, what happened to the player after, he stopped playing, 
you know, what did he do? What are his recollections of the game? You know, what what was his insight? That's more interesting to me than just the regurgitation of, you know, the 1976 Super Bowl type of thing. So that's, that's yeah, where I, I think you have a you have you have a you have a nice niche there as far as what you wrote, uh, making it a little more interesting than just the the run of the mill 1980s stuff, you know. Uh, and you're right. What more do you want to learn about Dan Marino? What more can be written about him? You know, very true. And yeah, exactly. Along those same lines, um, I was always a big fan of Pro Football Weekly, the newspaper. And I started reading that when I actually found a copy of it in the late 60s. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think they started publishing in 1967. And it's a weekly, it was a weekly pro football newspaper. And it had a lot of nice columns, a lot of of inside information. It was uh, very interesting to read. And I know, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it was roughly 2013, 2014 when you stopped writing for him. They were having a lot of financial difficulties, and um, I guess that's when they ceased the um, the actual printed copy of, of Pro Football Weekly. But uh, I was always a big fan of Pro Football Weekly, so I'm interested. Tell us about our your how you uh, and what you wrote for them, uh, and you were there for quite a quite a while, also almost ten years. Yeah, they they were kind enough to give me pretty much a blank check on what columns I wanted to write. I was basically a columnist. And they said, hey, you know, do do what you want. Very little editing, very little, you know, changing the content. Uh, I had a lot of connections uh, around the league. They had a lot of connections around the league that that I could play off of. So I was able to get a lot of good, uh, you know, Art Rooney Jr. and, you know, Paul Zimmerman from Sportsville and just dialing to people like that. So the, the the problem was with Pro Football Weekly was, you know, as you know, print started dying, what, mid-2000s, you know, magazines. Yeah. And you know, Pro Football Weekly was no longer a niche uh, item because the whole Internet was flooded with Pro Football stuff. And, by the way, Pro Football Weekly charged and the other folks didn't. And then the fantasy stuff took over big, and Pro Football League wanted to remain, you know, purist. We're going to talk about the game and its people, not get into the statistics. They refused to do that. And so it died a slow death, and I'm sad to see it go. But I really thought the, the, the brand name would carry some weight into the Internet world, into the PDF world. It did not. It did not. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, I, I lost my venue. And you wrote those, you wrote most of your articles kind of in the format that you said you used to copy out of SI, that you, you emulated. Um, not so much SI, but more of a, a column. You know, just, it wasn't, I, again, I didn't do a lot of hard research for this stuff. I would watch a game or see some kind of event, and I, that was treated as a, was a pure columnist. So, that's what I enjoyed. I don't want to – game stories are boring to me. I mean, you can jazz them up. You can have some fun with them and, and color them up a little bit with, you know, some unique wording, but they're boring to me. So, yeah, so I was considered a feature columnist there, and that was really my dream job when it came to what I was looking to do uh, as a writer. Tom, you mentioned I, your, I your... – your... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead no, I was going to say, I still maintain, contrary to, you know, what a lot of people say, there's still a market for a printed publication. And, uh, you know, not everybody, contrary to what everybody believes, believes that everybody gets all their information off the Internet and that's it. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, there can be room for, to me, a good printed publication for sports. And for, you know, a stronger sense of journalism and writing of these articles and columns and so on and so forth than the stuff that's being, you know, you know, depending on who you read and where you read it, so on and so forth, um, than what you get. I mean, if you if you read Sports Illustrated lately, it's a, what's it, a monthly, pu- monthly publication now, and they have like three or four long articles and that's it, in-depth articles. And 
the, to me, I, I don't see, I don't even see why they're publishing anymore. Although the articles, some articles are actually interesting. They're not, they're, there's nothing there. You know what I mean? A, you know, I'm not going to run to my newsstand and buy a Sports Illustrated just because of those articles type of them. But no, I think the Athletic kind of cornered that right. Isn't it called the Athletic where they went out and paid all the best top columnists around the country to be the writers? And then you got to yeah, pay like yeah, 29 yeah. bucks a month or something for that. But S, yeah, SI let, SI let itself collapse. But that's, that's, that's a whole different ballgame. I just don't know if the generations, the kids that grew up in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, I don't know if, they're, if, if print means anything to them. I don't think it does. And I think the, the longer we go on, print's going to continue just to shrivel up. I mean, I used to love coming home and printing off Dr. Z's article and having that piece of paper in my hand and reading it off. I don't know how many people yeah, yeah. Uh, in their 30s and 20s and teens can relate to that feeling. Right. Tom, you know Bob is it's the a publisher of Gridiron Greats Magazine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're yeah, a little I'm, bit I'm, just, I'm just telling you what I see out there. You know, I... Oh, yeah. I mean, my nephew, a big sports fan, allegedly, but he's never even looked at one of my books. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm just kidding. I I love getting the grid on grid. I I think a little bit of it's nostalgic. I mean, we grew up with that. We it yep. takes us yep. back to our yesteryears to get a publication, to open it, uh, you know, to read it, the feel of the paper, the smell of the ink, all of it. Uh, and if photos, you haven't done that, yeah. then, then yeah, yeah. So. Uh, you, you mentioned your book, you know, is comprised of, I think you said 45 short stories. Well, 45 I'm, individual I'm a, chapters. I'm, a, I'm about to ask you which, which of your children is your favorite, but while you're writing these chapters, there have to be some topics that you're more passionate about than others that are, are, are excited. I mean, what, tell us some stories about when writing, writing some of these and just how, how you pick the topics. Uh, well, how I picked the topics, again, it was just whatever. I, when I look back in my mind's eye at that decade, what excited me or what in, intrigued me, um, what did I dislike about that era? So one, I'll give you a couple of examples here quite easily. The number one, one of the first ones I wrote, although it's not chronological in the book, is about the, the early 80s Jets. And anybody that, that, that paid attention to the Jets – 80, 81, 82, 83, you heard it even from Cosell on Monday night, the most talented roster in football, but it never went anywhere. You know, they got to the championship game in 82, and it died. So I tracked down the personnel director, the guy that handled all their drafts in in those years, a guy named Mike Hickey, Red Hickey's son. Uh, You know, the former, I guess, UCLA coach or 49ers coach or whoever. And... He, was, he had left football in 89 when the Jets canned him, and he went into financial management and just basically stopped doing any interviews, and I had a heck of a time tracking him down, but I did. And for some reason, he you know, agreed to talk to me about those Jets oh, teams cool. and why they failed and why after 82 it all died. And you know, he went into and some stuff I didn't even bother putting in the book because he told me not to. But... The problem with Walt Michaels, the problem with Joe Walton when he took over and his relationship with the players, the, the issues with Richard Todd, why they didn't yeah. draft Marino. You know, why not take Marino? And I'll, I will tell you this because it's, you know, it's not going to spoil the rest of the book. But it's, it, they, they painted themselves into a corner of the Jets. And I, and I call it, you know, catch 22. The, the, remember the thing, if, you, you know, you don't go on bombing missions because you're crazy, but only people that are. Uh, Stain say that they don't want to go on bombing missions, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I call it Catch-13 with Marino, and Hickey explained to me very carefully. He goes, we are all set to draft Dan Marino if he's available. So he's ticking off, you know, ticking off, and and he's still there. And then he said the Steelers got to him. And they said, well, we're absolutely 100% sure the Steelers are going to take him and uh, forget about We'll start looking at who our next choice is going to be. And the Steelers didn't take him. So instead of jumping on Marino, the Jets' thought process became, wait a minute, if the Steelers didn't take him, well, there must be something wrong with him, so now we're not going to take him. (laughs) And this is Hickey. Yeah, and Hickey's like, we we, we outthought ourselves with this guy. Oh, wow. Um, 
Yes. Yeah, so I said, well there's, no, well, there's no way you can take him. If Pittsburgh gets him, you can't have him. And if Pittsburgh doesn't take him, you're not going to take him. So it was hey, very strange. But, you know, it just tells you how puzzling a player Marino was because there were those drug rumors about him that, that you know, <laughs> I've talked to a number of personnel people, and they, you know, some say yes, indeed, true. Others say no. But the rumors were there. And the Jets figured if Pittsburgh passed on this guy, because you know they were they – were, uh, Bradshaw had left, and you know Malone and Stout weren't really going to be big-time yeah. guys there. And that when they didn't take him, they figured, well, there's got to be something true to these rumors, so we're not going to take him. So I thought that was really the first time I saw it in print. I'm kidding, I've not seen it anywhere, and I researched, you know, Hickey before, you know, calling him. I didn't see that. Couldn't find it anywhere. Boy, Marino wow. was a pit guy. He went. Pit, I mean, that's. I didn't know that. Right in the backyard. I, I just right in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. When was Gaffneau part of that team? I always heard there were problems between Gaffneau and Klecko, too. There were. Anyways, yeah. uh, Mike, Mike Hickey confirmed that, but he said it didn't really affect the defense. I mean, they, Klecko didn't like the showboating. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, the inside guys eat up all the blocking, and then you know, Gaffneau gets to swarm in on a one-on-one situation. But if you look at those – the sackings that were done during that era, it didn't really, the relationship or the dislike between the two didn't really affect uh, their performance. And it wasn't just Klecko that didn't like Gas. I don't think, any, I don't think Marty Lyons had much for him. And I don't, I don't think the offensive guys liked that either. Uh, gotcha. But okay. Strange bird. Other, Marty other Lyons. stories. And I apologize that I didn't mean to cut you off. Marty Lyons uh, had a nice career as a um, commentator for the Jets over the years. And uh, when I lived in Connecticut, obviously it was the, you know, Jets, Giants, Patriots all the time. And I, I listened to him a lot and he, he was, he was a very good broadcaster, but thinking back to those 80 to 82, 83 teams, you're right. They had a lot of talent and they could never win the big game. And it was, you know, it, they still can't win the big game. You know, and it's just amazing. A franchise to go that yeah. many years doing nothing. I mean, really, that's what it amounts to. And uh, now looking at Rodgers being their savior, which he's not going to be, you, it, <laughs> again, you know, a, a lot of money is going to be wasted again. And, and for what? I'm not going to do anything with it. Whatever. Yeah, they, they seem to think that they've got a Super Bowl-ready team with, the, with just one guy. I, I don't see them being this extremely talented bunch but if they can bring him in for two years you could roll the dice and it's going to at least put the excitement back in the in the building right right exactly exactly any what, other what stories are some other that stories, Tom? You, were, you were mentioning something oh yeah um, well you talked about some different topics about that I, besides you know, they're interesting to me I thought another one was <laughs> When I was at Pro Football Weekly, I talked to Don Shula, and you know, he was pretty open about several, all the topics I was presenting to him. And he said to me, "There's absolutely, had we beaten the Patriots in the 85 playoffs or the championship, we would have beaten the Bears again in a rematch. Adamantly. They couldn't match up with yeah. us. You know, uh, Marino's release, track, fast track, our receivers versus their defensive back. You know, be pretty out of it about. So, so when I'm when I'm doing the '85 Bears section, I I didn't want to tell you about anything that you already knew. I went in there and I found a couple of ex-Bears and I presented to them what Shula had said, and I said, okay, tell me why that would not have happened, why you would have beat Miami. Gary Fensick and um, geez, who's the defensive coach up in Buffalo? He was a D-back for them. Leslie Frazier. So I tracked those two guys down and said, okay, tell me why Shula's wrong. And that got them animated. Now they're talking about, oh, really? You guys lost to New England? You're going to beat us in a rematch? And, you know, so I, they, and they broke it down technically, too, what they would have done differently in a rematch with Marino, how they would have handled him. And uh, that, was, that was another interesting thing to me when I was putting the book together, an interesting topic, I would say. I don't think anybody would have beat, beaten the Bears that year. I really don't. Uh, you know, as much no, as I, I said, yeah, I can't. I can. I cannot see that. The Bears were the Bears. I mean, they were they were unstoppable that year. Uh, no way. I, I can't see Miami 
in a rematch beating them. And uh, the Patriots, to me, just were just so overmatched it wasn't even funny. So yeah, they had a good team, but there's no no possible way they had a good enough team to beat the Bears uh, that right. year. That's it. <laughs> Interesting. I agreed. But listen, it gave me something to put my teeth into, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what you're looking for. So, uh, and again, I wonder how many coaches second-guess themselves as the years go on. What what happens if we did this? What happens if we did that? So on and so forth. We could have won here. We could have won there. Blah, blah, blah. And, I, and like I, I always say, you know, you, football is a simplistic game. You gotta have more points than the other team, and you win the game. That's what it's all about. So you gotta fight for every point. You gotta fight for every score. You're doing analytical. You know, today to me, it's it's much more analytical, and it's more statistic. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the word I'm trying to use. It's just more focused on the metrics of this play is going to work 90% of the time, so we're going to run it. Even though I know Joe Schmo on the corner there is going to come in and kill us, I'm going to still run the play type of thing. You know, instead of using any type of real football sense, and that's what I really think is missing in the game. There's just there's just not a lot of common sense on the on the field and play calling in a lot of cases. Let the players play. That's the way I look at it. You know, but it is what it is. It's overcoached to say the least. But uh, well, that's the, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. The minutia becomes very very prevalent. Very important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, another question for you, Tom. Uh, Joe and I are football collectors. Do you collect anything? Or are you, uh, you know, any Pittsburgh memorabilia, NFL memorabilia, whatever it may be? Uh, the main thing I got into was AJD caps from the 70s. Do you recall those? They had the mesh backing, and they had the AJD was the name. Was the name of the comp was the name of the company. They had lucky stripes and super stripes, and they and in sports still, they always had the picture of the four or five hats arrayed out there, and um, just yeah, just if you can't Google that, and you'll see them. But uh, that that's what I that's what I collect because number one, wasn't allowed to have any when I was growing up, and number two. If I if I could get a hold of one, it wasn't any of the teams I was interested in. So that I, I collected those to the point where I go, okay, now what? I got all the teams I want. I only have one head. I can only wear one at a time. So I burned that passion out. But it took you know it, it took ten years of my time to do it. Cool. It's, it's so that, that I've never heard of them, but I wrote it down and I'll look that up. How'd you get yeah, into collecting AJ's, that? I'm sorry. How'd you get into collecting oh, those? Just your I, era? I just thought they were. I just thought they were cool. I just liked the way they looked. I mean, if you remember in the seventies, people wore the caps up on top of their head. They didn't really pull them down, you know. It just sat on your on, on top of your head like that. And oh, were I was those stupid in the hat? Anyway, were, the, were those the ones that had the stripes in the front and they had like the logo in the middle? And then yep. the, the you got it. The other half. Oh, okay. And it was like a, almost a, some of them had a mesh in the back of your head uh, on the hat, and some were were um, were full caps. I vaguely remember those now. I can picture them. Picture them. Those were pretty cool. Those were definitely cool. I had a, I had they a couple, were, they, but I don't remember. I had they a, had uh, the college too. So. Yeah, so they had yeah. lucky stripes and super stripes, what they call them. So the you know the first ones, the stripes went uh, parallel to the ground, and the the other ones were vertical. But anyway, oh, yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. collection. Okay. Tom, it's so funny you talk about you, you talk about like Dan Marino and those, and I mean you know Bob mentioned we're collectors, and there's so many uh, you know like cards. Like I I know Dan Marino's drafted in '83 as rookie cards '84. And I know that because I'm an avid 1984 collector, and there's so many of these players and names and stuff and, and teams and position, what number they are that I just I, I associate with collecting. Uh, and just, you know, I, I know where Marino and Elway's card is located on the Series C sheet of the 84 top set. Um, you know, where he was drafted from, because I remember looking at that Marino card a lot when I was a kid. 
it's uh th- that's just kind of my mnemonic my my memory of you know the, the collecting is associated with the, the player and you know the, the team yeah that's uh that's a very big thing the cards and the i don't i don't know if it's if it's still as big in terms of the newer stuff, because I, I used to collect stuff myself, yeah. more just for personal gratification, not for necessarily uh, increasing value in that sort of thing. I just liked having the dolphin yeah. cards and the stars and all that. But yeah, but that hat thing was yeah. number one for me in terms of being a pure collector and trying to track this stuff down at garage sales and eBay helped a lot. Without a doubt. Cool. Your book, Majesty and Mayhem, Pro Football of the 1980s. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your book and how to purchase it? Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, right I've there. I've heard of that. About as, about as that. easy as it gets. Um, the only yeah. and the funny thing is, like, I can't even tell you any bookstores where you might find it because I don't think bookstores exist anymore. There are Portland is very famous for one very huge bookstore called Powell's Books. It's an entire city block, forty thousand square feet, with a couple sub basements and stuff. So. Uh, it's got a coffee shop in it. I love going down there and grabbing books and uh, going into the coffee shop. So, hey, we're yeah. old school that way. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, good point. Very good point. So, well, I look forward to it. I have it in my queue to order, and uh, I look forward to it. I, I especially love, like you said, the little stories like that. The you know, the, you know, a collection of stories uh, that you can start, stop. You know, et cetera. Uh, I, I look forward to it, especially since it seems like we're from the same era. So, uh, just to let you guys know, I started a 1990s version yesterday. So, <laughs> give me two years, oh, and I'll cool. have a 90s version out for you. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right. One well, last sir. question, Tom. Our our listeners really want to know: any of your stories revolve around the the Seattle Seahawk great wide receiver Steve Largent? Uh, unfortunately, they do not. But I will say this: in, in, in the '70s book that I did, the Super '70s, that I did a whole chapter with Jack Patera, um, oh, wow. who was always known for being a very quiet guy. But boy, he talked away from yep. when I was uh, talking to him. So yeah, I I did a chapter on Patera, who I thought did a hell of a job when the, when the Hawks first came into existence. Absolutely, um, I wanted to make sure he was part of that book. That's wow. really cool. cool. I, how do you get a hold of people? Like, how do you find people to just even reach out to Jack Patera? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Well, the Internet really helped because prior to the Internet, you know, Will, how did you find, how did you, you know, how did you track people down? There really was no other thing. But now you can at least find out what city they live. Okay, then you kind of try to find out if they're, if they're associated with some kind of church group or something like that. Um, you, it's it's a lot easier now. The problem I have to, with today's with doing this writing today is that the farther we get into history, so like the 1990s is going to be tough to get people to talk to me because the media really exploded during that decade. The internet exploded. People want to keep their own content for their own websites and things. So I find it much more reluctant to, to get interviews versus the 70s where those guys are thinking half of them were forgotten and they're very willing to talk. And with Patera, again, known for being a quiet guy when he was the, the, Hawks, the Seahawks coach, boy, I, I could have talked to him for another three hours and uh, the chapter would have been too long. But, yeah, that's my, that's my Seattle participation uh, in the three books I've done. That's very cool. Patera uh, played at Oregon, University of Oregon up here in Oregon. That I did not know. Very interesting. And you're right. uh, I think the older guys do like to have their story told. I know we we feature a lot of older players in our magazine, and they're happy to talk again about their playing days, so on and so forth. Newer guys, it's hit or miss in a lot. There's still some great guys playing the game. Uh, but to me, you know, you got to find them and uh, you got to build their trust uh, with them, and uh, then they'll they're they're happy to talk about things. So that's great. That's very interesting. Tom, thanks for being on today. I, I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully you no, sell you. some more books. And uh, well, very I appreciate. It. I really enjoyed this. I'm glad. It's uh, it's interesting. It's refreshing to hear something different being written. 
uh, as you totally. did with your book. And uh, I, I wish you the best with your new book in the 90s. And uh, we'll have you back on when you're finished with that. We'll talk about that. How's that sound? <laughs> very good. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Okay. Bob, great Thanks having you on the cast. Thank you. Come on. All right. Joe, we're going to go into uh, we've got a couple extra minutes today going into our two-minute warning a little early. But, uh, again, that, that's pretty interesting. And I think yeah. he brought up brought up a couple of good points. And uh, like I said in the show, and I really mean it, what else can be written about certain things? You know what I'm saying? And I, I try to look at things differently. I, and now, again, we both like older football history. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we our history basically starts in the 20s and prior to that, and it doesn't end really until like the 70s or the 80s. And, you know, in the 90s, the 00s, the 10s, the 20s, the history is there. But what can be written about it? What, what can you say? You know, what can, what can be written? I'd like to read a story one day or a book one day, getting into Belichick's mind as a coach, how he made his determinations the way he did to coach the way he did. I think that would be an interesting book. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. is it written? Is it going to be, you know, is, is anything he's going to say not been said already? That's, that's the point of it. So uh, interesting. Think, interesting. I, think I read a lot of books on American history, you know, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, et cetera. And I can tell mm-hmm. you I have probably a dozen books on James Madison. And I'm reading a book right now, The Letters Between, uh, which is just literally the, the letters between Madison and Jefferson that they wrote. They were extensive mm-hmm. writers. And every mm-hmm. book opens another door. Every point of view um, is a little bit different. And the, the more you read on a topic, the better. I mean, last, our last show's guest, Joe Ziamba, I believe is how it's pronounced, uh, you know, the Chicago Cardinals, Chicago Bears. I thought yeah. I knew a yeah. lot about the Bears. Uh, reading his book, I learned a lot. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. um, I, I, I really wish I would have had a chance to order his book and get it and read it in time. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I have two, three, I have two books working right now, the Jefferson Madison letters, and then I'm, I just finished uh, the, you know, the Cardinals Bears, you know, book a couple days yeah. ago over the weekend. Um, how do you? Yeah. It, I, I would love to read his story because I mean, just different points of view on the same subject. I I think are fascinating, and I've also put books away where it's just uh, all right. It's a little belabored. It's the same point of view and put them away. But I can tell by Tom's style, he has he was so excitable. I mean, shot right out of the gate. You know, when you introduced him, yeah. you're like, oh my gosh, I love this energy. I can just tell that plays yeah. over to his writing because he was very excited right. about it. How do you find the time to read all the books suggested to you? Because well, you're a prolific footballer. I'm, I'm always reading. You know, I got I start and I you know it drives Brenda crazy because I got like I'm reading three different books at the same time. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> how, how can you keep track of this stuff? And then she says, "You're going to do a review <laughs> on this. What are you doing?" And I and you know, for me, I have a notebook. I you know, I still physically write down notes on books and stuff like that. And I do mm. writing books. And you know, it just it just keeps me you know keeps keeps me uh, fresh with the book in trying to read it. So so on and so forth. I have the PDF version of the uh, of uh, Joe's book from our last show, and I'm reading that. And PDF books for me are a little more difficult to to read for the simple reason totally. I gotta I've got to go online all the time to do it. I read it on totally my phone agree. sometimes. So, anyways, long story short, I'm reading various books at the same time. And like you, I know the books that are sleepers, and I know the books that keep my interest. And that's what it's all about. And you try to find something. Got to try to find something in that book that keeps you wanting to finish reading the book. And that's an art to doing that, to say the least. And we're almost out of time. Uh, Ten seconds, Joe. Any other final thoughts? Great guest. I loved his energy. Good good show, Bob. 
Yeah, it was very interesting. I'm glad uh, our mutual friend, John Wilkie, uh, gave us the information on him, and uh, we got to talk to him. That's it. Yeah. Check out our website, gridirongreatsmagazine.com. If you're not a subscriber, what are you waiting for? And we'll be back, <laughs> hopefully, in a, another week or so with another show. Take care. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.